I'm uh, Duncan Jones. I'm the director of the film. I'm uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm uh, one of the actors in the film. And I'm Ben Ripley. I'm the writer of the film. I wanted to write a nonlinear story, something in the vein of Rashomon, Groundhog Day, Sliding Doors, all, all the sort of classics of nonlinear storytelling. And I just started thinking about science fiction devices that I could use uh, that would enable us to re-experience uh, a crime, a terrorist event, maybe. And uh, the early versions in my head were very, very different from what ended up here. I originally started thinking about a crime that took place in a static location like a bank and uh, re-experiencing that from multiple different points of view. And as I worked on it more and talked to more people, uh, someone suggested I set this on a speeding train, which made a lot more sense. And then we moved the point of view down to one guy going back on the train multiple times. And that just seemed to be the right way to tell a very complicated story. Um, these opening shots um, are helicopter photography outside of Chicago of the actual commuter lines that run into the city. Um, and obviously um, some beautiful photography of the city itself. Uh, Paul Hirsch, who is the editor on this film, is a, an absolute legend and a master. Um, you may have heard his name attached to certain films like Empire Strikes Back, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he won an Oscar for Ray, um, Footloose and a Mission Impossible as well. Um, we were coming up with this uh, early sequence when we were trying to work out the credits and, and I think Paul was really the one who managed to crack what we needed to do and the fact that we'd be bouncing back and forth between the Chicago skyline and the train, which is obviously the, the, the obvious in, in uh, retrospect, but it was, the, it was, it was a, an idea that we came up with in the edit that works very well. I love how the train is moving different directions in different shots, which is already disorienting. Yeah, and here's your, uh, here's your big start. I remember the first thing we talked about, I was talking about with you, was if you're in somebody else's body, what would it taste like? Did he have a cup of coffee in the morning? You know, had he brushed his teeth? And that was my first response was, it doesn't taste right, something doesn't taste right, something doesn't smell right. It's all about the senses in this moment. I took your advice. I think Ben did a really lovely job actually in the, in the, in the draft itself as far as really making that, that sense of, uh, well, the, the idea that the senses are really picking up extra detail um, in, at the very beginning of the film. Yes, and yeah, it was by by starting the movie with him already on this on this ride in this mission, uh, it, it it puts the audience in the very same perspective. They know no more information than he does, and I I think that was the the right way to get right into the story, hit the ground running. In the screenplay, when when you read the first page of the screenplay, it's it's like a it's almost like a a map of words. I mean, your each clue is being set up in the way the way Ben wrote it, you know, the capitalization of different sounds and, you know, even like paragraph separations, you know sort of exactly how to play it. And the question was always, I know we talked about, was what would, what would you really feel like if you woke up um, and didn't know where you were? And I always, I kept thinking in my mind what it felt like, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and some place where you don't really know, you're not familiar with, like you've traveled a far distance and you wake up, you really actually don't know where you are for a couple seconds. If you would prolong that feeling for eight minutes, obviously, what would that feel? How would you really respond? And um, 
explored that in a million different ways. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think you and Michelle had a real challenge um, right from the start, and I, you know, I was always I was always glad that the producers were able to give us that week of rehearsal time before we started shooting because I think that really gave us an opportunity to get the get the homework out of the way as far as structurally what what we needed to achieve at the at the start of the scene and where we needed to get to by the end of it so that by the time we were able to start we were shooting you we could be much more improvisational and have a lot more fun with it you desperately wanted me to wear an orange shirt too that was your that was your dream well you know i'd heard i'd heard about that and i'd heard about how you and ang lee had been working on on different <laughs> colors for different scenes and i <laughs> well you know there's the belief that you know your character would sort of um would manifest the feeling that was inside of him. And at this point, it's orange. It's alert. It's alert orange, which was the choice of... Maybe they shouldn't have asked us to do this on April Fool's. It's <laughs> probably not the right day for it. <laughs> ben, bail us out here. You know, in the early drafts of Source Code, he actually went back for 17 minutes each time. And I think there was a sense that that was just a little too long. And by cutting it down to eight minutes, that made his task all the harder. And, you know, as a writer, the more obstacles you can throw at a character, uh, the better, the more conflict it generates. So he has very little time uh, to figure out what's going on, let alone make any kind of decision. And this first source code back on the train is very important because you're setting up the choreography, the, the, the sort of the architecture uh, of those eight minutes, uh, from little details that happen to, you know, other trains going by, and that's going to sort of be the landmarks uh, for him in the audience. I remember that that was a, you know, the, the, the fact that you, you sort of truncated it like that down to eight minutes sort of gave me a bit more of a, of a puzzle to solve in that, you know, how do you, how do you justify and generate a relationship that's believable between, between um, Coulter and Christina when they really have only eight minutes for that relationship to develop? But, um, you know, I think there was some, there was some good work that, Jake, that you and Michelle and I all did as far as creating a level of familiarity between those characters before we joined them on the train. Well, in the, in the, again, in the early drafts, they actually were strangers on a train. They didn't know each other at all. And it was really hard for them to build any kind of rapport. And I think once the decision was made that they had a, a pre-existing friendship, that made it a lot easier. Just so the audience knows, no Chicago's were hurt in the uh, filming of this scene. Yet several uh, trains, virtual. several trains were probably abused. <laughs> actually, that's a, that's a good point. Talk, speaking of Chicago, the, the 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 fact that we actually moved the film because I think Ben is aren't I right in saying that one of the earlier drafts had the film taking place in New York as well? Yes, uh, I grew up uh, outside of New York, so that was the train line I knew, and that was uh, initially where it was set. Can I, you know what I thought was interesting in, in terms of the, the switch from the train? When you go into the source code and you go back into the pod, this is the first time. Was Well, at first, you know, we're upside down, but um, I remember we had, a, we had this question about whether I was actually going to be upside down or not. And, in fact, the camera's upside down and then turns around. <clears throat> but the differences in cameras that you used was actually really aided the acting style because I guess you were using the red camera in this yeah for this section it was the enhanced in yeah it was an enhanced red camera and then in the on the train it was all film and so the, the the feeling of being able to just roll through takes for a very very long time where we could go all the way through a take and then go all the way back through a take again and 
I could keep experimenting and Duncan just would let me over and over again to have different responses to each one of the lines was a real advantage. I mean, I can see how it, even how you made it look, but as an actor, having it digital gave us loads and loads of time. Yeah, I think um, we, we originally, I mean, uh, Don Burgess, who was my cinematographer on, on, on the film, um, we originally saw a, a still frame, actually, from a David Fincher test that he'd done with Leonardo DiCaprio, just na- dropping names left, right, and center here. Wow. Um, <laughs> but that still frame um, was lit with They've a single... They've never made a movie together. <laughs> I know, it was with a lit match. It was a camera test. It was oh, yeah. it was a camera test for for the, for this red this version of the red camera, oh. and the whole and the whole scene was lit with a single match, and Don Don and I were thinking like oh, I wonder if it would be possible to actually create this set and and light you purely with practical lighting built into the set, not actually have to bring in any any secondary lighting, which you really did. We got close. I mean, there was a little bit of enhancement that Don used, but but the camera for you know, the the red in this really did allow us to do some 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 pretty crazy stuff. The one thing I love is like that we never. We never stopped asking questions when we were making the movie. So, you know, obviously even the light source that you're talking about, which is the which is a window up at the top, mm. which I think I go to in a second. Yeah, there's a moment where I look up to the window to sort of say, well, how maybe I can get out that window. What's up in that window? Yeah. And even just by acknowledging where the light source comes from, you yeah. kind of we've answered that question. Yeah. Well, those th- th- yeah, that's that's true. And also for me, there was a th- th- there was an idea which obviously. I'm hoping you're watching, listening to the commentary after you've watched the movie, you yeah. know, so I don't spoil anything for you. But the shape of that window is really important in the pod because that's going to that's gonna relate to the shape of the window in what we call the incubator, which is the real physical place where Coulter Stevens' body is kept. I have a question for you, Duncan. Um, in your decision to use the RED camera, aesthetically, how does that change? What does that pick up uh, that a, a film camera wouldn't? Well, you know, it, it's it's a strange one that because I think you know the, the the acquisition of images has become almost less important of, than the manipulation of them after you're actually after you've acquired them and you're in the in your you're you're in the grade you're doing the telecine, um, you know, digitally. Every everything ends up digital anyway, so there is an awful lot of room for manipulation at that point. But you do get things like grain on on film that you don't get on 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 a digital um, media, um, and and. There are certain differences that you get with with the specific stock that you use on a film camera that that are not going to be replicated on on the red, and I think because we are sort of going back and forth between between what are um, ostensibly different worlds, um, I think Don and I were really looking for ways to give each one of them very unique personalities. As an actor, too, you you, you just always gave us the opportunity to experiment. I think as a result, I see little things where I see. You know, Vera moved her head in that last scene in this way that Jeffrey had really surprised her in that. And you put that in because it felt like a really natural moment between two people, not something sort of stunted and 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 stoic as you would you would sort of find in, I think, sort of an average sci-fi movie, you know, kind of like the very human and always allowed us to, the mistakes is where you loved us to go, which is always so much more human, which is, I think where the movie succeeds so well and that all the characters feel real and that they're actually going through it. Well, I mean, you know, it's like any 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 member of, of, of any any department that you're hiring people into, you want to get the best people who do their jobs. And and for me, you know, I hire a cinematographer like Don Burgess because I, I want him to do what he's good at. I hire Paul Hirsch because I, I want him to do what he's good at. And when you're working with actors, you want to bring them in and then just kind of create an environment where they can do what they're good at. I, 
I always find it a little strange when when you hi- when you hear stories of directors who hire actors and then tell them what to do. Because mm. it's kind of like that's what's the point in hiring them then if you want if you want a puppet, get a puppet. You know? There are some actors who do do yeah. enjoy that too though. I mean it's I guess styles. So. Yeah. 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 Speaking of the acting, I, I really admire what Jake is doing here, which is this is only the second time in. And you can tell that he's he's still confused, but he's starting to put stuff together. And he's going on a different idea in this second source code, that this is actually not real. This is a simulation. And he's starting to be at home with the idea that this is a simulation. And we worked hard to not make these trips back repetitive. And I think one of the ways we did that is we gave him a different mindset coming into each and every source code that would make it feel like it had a slightly different spin. That was, Duncan too had written for each source code, he had written our, my relationship with Christina Coulter and relation, uh, Christina's relationship. He sort of whittled it down to a, a sentence for each one. And then he gave both Michelle and I, you gave us both. That's right. Yeah, we kind of, we had sort of code names for each of the, for each of the visits so that each one would have its own personality like, like Ben was talking about. So uh, I, I, I remember it was sort of a, it was sort of being being completely at a, at at a loss for the first one, and then the second one was to treat it as a simulation, and then I think the third one was 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 that I think that was romantic. I can't remember. But yeah, and then kind of each one had its own personality. I was also just to to just all the actors working in this train car, um, you know, when we go in and out, obviously we're this is outside towards the end of the shooting. We go back into the train. That's the beginning of us shooting on a stage outside here is, uh, is but the actors on the train every single one of them had to do their action over and over and over again which i just think is mind numbing at times <laughs> i mean and and should be commended cuz i mean the fact that they they did that thousands of times they did i mean we had how long were we in there about 3 weeks i yeah. think about 3 weeks on the train and there there is one particular gentleman fairly uh you know, portly chap who I was sleeping up against the window, and he was—he was—he had to basically sleep against the window for three weeks. I'm—I'm <laughs> I'm sure he's well rested now. See, the job of being an actor is not <laughs> as easy as people think it is. There was one where we—we uh, we cut out of me just sleeping, just deciding to just take a nap, going, "I'm exhausted. This has been exhausting." Source code four should just be Coulter deciding to take a nap. <laughs> I love searching through things. I just have to say, there's something as an actor... Well, the, there were a lot of metal edges on this set. I think you cut true. your hands off so bad. So true. There was like, I mean, the movie was... we. Duncan agreed to do the movie, and it was four months later that we were making the movie. And so, you know, the train occasionally, due to the speed at which we made the movie, and really how the movie moves, too, it yeah. sort of mimics itself. Jake's hands look like sliced bacon by the end of the shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I do grab onto a lot of really sharp edges that don't look sharp, yeah. but are. I had bloody hands. We had a very busy nurse on set. I had a different hand insert because Duncan didn't like the bloody hands. It didn't make any sense. <laughs> But I delicately touched this bomb. You gonna tell me how to disarm this? Uh, should I unplug it, or do you want me to just leave it? Or okay, um, I am just gonna leave it. Okay. 
transit security. No, you're Due not. Due to a classified security breach, I need all of you to turn off any personal electronic devices until we pull into the station, okay? That means laptops, cell phones. Cell phones, sir? Cell phones, sir. Thank you very much. Pagers, anything electronic. Thank you. It's just a precautionary measure. Nothing to worry about. So which is it? Security breach or precautionary measure? Sir? Sir? Is there a problem here, sir? You know what I think's great too, which was so brilliant when you said to me before when I'm looking at the bomb, it was your idea to have me talk, go talk to Goodwin, thinking that Goodwin was somewhere um, up there. And that was the first taste of humor really that we, in the movie you get, and you go, oh, okay, as an audience member, yeah. you kind of go, okay, they're not taking themselves too seriously here. Yeah. I think I know what tone I'm in. Yeah. And so it allows us to really have fun as the source codes keep going. And that was like, that was, I love that you brought that up and you wrote that. We, we, did we improv that moment? There was like a sort of weird improv moment. It, it might have came out of a little bit of tweaking that we did, we did on the script. And, and you know, I think, I think Ben had some, some comedy already innately in the script. I mean, certainly we had the character of, um, of that, that Russell, um, that, that Russell Peters plays. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, what my take was when I read Ben's script is, is I think there's an opportunity here to lighten the tone and, sure try to find ways to inject extra humor into the film to help the audience take that leap of faith on some of the the, the technolo technological sci-fi shenanigans that we kind of rely upon in the film. And I think by lightening the tone, it sort of helps bring the audience with us and sort of they'll, they'll just take that leap of faith. This is brilliant too. Every time you come back into the pod, what I loved as an actor too was the, uh, the fact that there's oil on the floor. It, when you know about what's happening with him outside of this pod, you know that I think a lot of times when, you know, later on the pod freezes, when the, it's leaking, internally there must be some kind of internal bleeding going on inside him. And I just love that metaphor. It was so... It's actually, I'd like to, I'd like to ask Ben about that because that was obviously, mm -hmm. that was my interpretation of it. I, I assume that that's correct. Is that right, Ben? Yes. If you look at the pod as a kind of um, barometer of his physical and mental state, when, when the pod is not doing well, that just means that he's in a greater degree of distress. Um, and I was also trying to channel, uh, you know, the cockpit of a Black Hawk helicopter. Uh, a friend of mine is a Black Hawk pilot, and I, you know, had an opportunity to see what these things look like, and it just made sense that there would be a certain, uh, you know, carryover into the pod from that, from that aesthetic. And that was another thing was the, the, the believability of when I went back into the source code, knowing that, you know, you, you are a soldier and you do follow orders. And when given orders, you, you can't not, um, particularly by a superior and particularly as a, as a helicopter pilot, when things are going down, you know, as a pilot in general, you're going to trust your instruments. You're not going to necessarily trust, necessarily trust your instinct. And so I always went back to that over and over again, saying, okay, trust the instruments, trust the instruments. Your instinct may be completely disoriented here, but you need to trust your in mm. instruments. And that was a huge sort of guide through both the pod and the source code in terms of believing it myself. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I read your script, Ben, I, I, and and I was trying to get wrap my head around how the what the pod was and how it worked. Um, my take was that, that like as as it says later on in the in the script, there's a, this is a manifestation of 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 your mind. This is something created out of trying to make sense of the jumble of sensory data that you're getting in this in this terrible predicament that you're actually physically truly in. So the so the cold and the and the leaking of liquids and all of thing these things to me were. Um, like you were talking about, Jake, these are kind of physical ailments which are going on with this sort of half corpse that you actually are. 
And this is your mind trying to make sense of that. You know, you, you feeling cold, if your body drops a, temp a, a couple of degrees, then in the pod, in the manifestation, the whole thing's shutting down and freezing. And, and also veering off from, from what normally supposed to happen, which is when you veer off from what the fate has been, which is that you're in an explosion. Later on, when I get hit by the train, that hitting of the train is a different death. And so in that different death, my body would respond a different way, maybe, right, you know. Right. Yes. Uh, I also I also want to say a word about just the aesthetic of the pod, which I really liked. I'm really glad you didn't make it pretty or sleek or you know futuristic. I, I think it's very down to earth, very much like a cockpit. Um, yeah, well, which are, I mean, these, those are dirty places. Like like you said as well. I mean, it it makes sense that if his last memory is being a helicopter pilot in in Afghanistan and and going you know crashing in this in this Black Hawk, then. That manifestation is going to, at, at its start, begin with him believing he's in something like a like a Black Hawk cockpit. And then, for me, what one one of the things that I sort of you know uh, went a little had a little poetic license with was that over the course of the film, that that pod environment would change. And there was a very important reason for me. You know, obviously, in the script, you have these three very defined locations. You have the inside of the train, you have the pod, you have the lab environment. Um, and, and it works great on paper, but visually I had to find a way to, to have an evolution, have a change over the course of the film. So for the, for the train, we move around the train. For the pod environment, we have, have an actual environment which is going to morph and change in shape, giving us visually different things to see. And for the lab environment, we actually break the lab up into, a, into like a series of clock hours and we, and we rotate and move our way around the clock over the course of the film so that by the end of the film you're constantly seeing new things and never feel like you've although you're revisiting the same places you always feel like you're seeing new things you know the thing about i remember meeting with you early on and you showing me some drawings of the pod and um i always am impressed by how kind of calm you are uh all, sort of all the time uh and it, not to say that it, it was odd, but it's incredibly comforting as an actor because I, you came on with these pictures and I thought, this is probably one of the most complicated scripts that you could interpret, you know. And I remember you saying, with with so so much ease, you said, well, I'm going to basically, I'm going to add even more complication by creating <laughs> even more variation, yeah. which just felt like, oh, this guy is an expert chess player. He's not, <laughs> and he's finding this easy, which was a sort of dead giveaway that you know the movie was going to be an excellent movie. Well, St Stanley Kubrick used to leave a chessboard on his set supposedly just to intimidate other people. I, I like to le leave noughts and crosses. <laughs> <laughs> Connect for. <Yeah>, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think Michelle Monaghan had a very challenging job because uh, she has to sort of reset and be that same person each time he comes back. And that, that is very difficult to do, again, without it seeming like she's just repeating the same scene. Because she is changing, but she's changing because he is changing. And his responses are sort of guiding her in a new direction. I think that's much harder to pull off than you would think. No, absolutely. And I think she had a very unique acting challenge in that she has an arc which has to change over the course of the entire film. But she has to do it in eight-minute segments which always start at the same place. So she's going from A to B. A to C, A to D, A to E, so that over the course of the film there is a there is this, this change, but it always starts in the same place. I think it's it, it's a real you know it's a, that's I think for an actor that must be a really challenging thing to have to deal with. That relied on what we, you said when 
you cast Michelle in the movie, you know, you loved her in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Mm -hmm. And I think um, a lot of the things working with those two actors, Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer, there's a lot of improvisation. Yeah. And she is so free in the world of improvisation and feels so confident. And that was how, I mean, we just would improv certain things, particularly interpretations of the scene, so that in this scene in particular, there was a, there's sort of a highly kind of sexualized version of it. And there's a one where we did incredibly flirtatious, I remember. And yeah. then one where I was just focused only on the mission. And then as I see it cut together and what you did, you know, you took a little bit of that highly flirtatious bit um, and put it in there so that we start to get a sense of these two people just being attracted to each other a little bit. But that was Michelle being so such an incredible improviser. And um, I really followed her lead in that sense because even though I was the one who kept coming back and following my character's story she was the one who also set the romantic tone yeah and she came up with that great imp improvisational line which is in the film at this about this one being a keeper yeah. you know actually I'm off to save the world and she says I knew he was a keeper yeah, I knew he was a keeper that was great really good now for oh, me this this, uh, this sequence here is very Hitchcockian uh, there, there's not a lot of dialogue right now and it, it it seems very loaded, and, and it's a little bit amusing, a little bit strange, and uh, it, again, seemed just quite like out of a Hitchcock movie. I always, when I was reading the script, there was this sort of sense of, um, because the first time you really get off the train, and as the character sort of has a, a sense of breath, you know, there's a real sense of like... Okay, the world, this world, whatever this world is, is a lot bigger than I think it is. It's a, it goes on forever, whether it's real, whether it's not real, whatever it is. Oh my! If it's a part of my imagination, this is we just take we just took a huge breath, mm. um, and so all the opportunities become much bigger for him. And I just remember reading it in the script and being like, "What's going on?" I mean, yeah. where are we? And I feel that way in the movie too. You're you're sort of outside. I I love what you do in this this bit where you go sit. We basically go and make him move move to get him to, so that you can sit next to him. You that were is, just laughing when I did it the first time. You said it. you just seem so creepy. Can you make it creepier? And I was like, <laughs> sure. And then he would laugh, and so it would just encourage <laughs> me to make it even creepier. <laughs> it works great. I love it. What did you say to me? You said something like, "Make him move over." Yeah, make <laughs> him move over. That's all you said. <laughs> <laughs> it's very silly, but it really works. If you notice in the background of one of these shots coming up, there is a man out of focus sitting on a van. I don't know if it's this shot or it has maybe to be we've the, already the passed two it. Shot, isn't it? We're Behind us? Hold on a sec. Maybe it's there. But anyway, that was... Uh, is I it in a fight? That's, that's Derek who's sitting on the van. I don't know if you remember with when we were binoculars? shooting those scenes. Yeah, sitting on the van with a pair of binoculars. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was it's great to be just coming show up. him doing his, his evil deed. Oh, it must have already happened. So you'll really? have to you'll have to still frame on the DVD there. But during that little conversation between the two of them, there's a you can see the bomber doing his 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 nasty. This is my favorite move right here. Spin move. Oh yeah, that's spin move. There you go. He's kind of proud of that. This was a loose and scrappy fight, but um, we had there fun. There he is. There he is. Oh, you, you see yeah, him? I just saw him <laughs> on the back of the van. It wasn't you. You know, as an actor, sometimes you have these moments where you're supposed to picture things or 
And somehow your mind has so many things going on, particularly in, in this movie. There's so many things going on that I remember a few takes where I had no idea what I was saying, why I said you didn't do it. Right. Which is good because right. I do end up coming back to him and going, no, 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 you have to be the bomber. Yeah. Because, oh, ouch. Never mind. <laughs> good hit. That's the end of that. <laughs> good hit, good hit. Get up, get up, good You'll hit. You'll never know what I was going to say. <laughs> For a while, in the first cut of the movie when you showed it to me, there was like a, a humorous <laughs> when I got hit. <laughs> yeah, we were like, a little over the top with the cracking bones. A little play on killing actors. <laughs> a little joke. I have to admit it was fun figuring out how I can kill you off after eight minutes each time in different ways. <laughs> it's funny how much fun people have thinking about that. Uh, so, Jake, you talked about what pilots do when their aircraft is in trouble. And what I love in this in this moment here uh, is that he eventually gets to the point where he's just going to go through his checklist. And that's what you do as a pilot when there is a problem. Uh, you don't freak out. Uh, you look at your instruments and you literally open a binder that has a checklist and you start going through your checklist. And as a pilot, I like that he responds uh, in the same way. It's consistent. Okay, this is something that, that this is that that's the first stage of morphing of the pod, and and we tried to we we went we went very low tech, very low school on that one, and did it in the dark with sound effects. And I like it because it's kind of all of a sudden we're in this environment which is different. We know something has occurred, and most of the audience probably won't really realize that this set now is actually much bigger than the set we have been in up until this point in the movie. And I, and, and I like the fact that we, 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 we have that morph, but the audience hasn't really necessarily noticed it yet. So later on, we can have a sort of a second bite at the apple where we can actually show the morph, morph visually. What I always get frustrated with as an actor is when somebody says to you, well, I have a question about this. What, what, this doesn't make sense. Uh, I always like to kind of push push the sides of things to see if the wall's going to fall down. I keep bringing up this window thing, but the window thing was a big question for me, as was the emergency exit. Mm. And I always would say, well, why wouldn't he pull the emergency exit? And I'd have to, I would ask you these questions, and then I don't know if you had them already answered, but that was part of our relationship on set, where a lot yeah. of these questions and, like, I would ha I would solve certain things that were questions, and then... I would ask you these questions or I would push something. And for instance, yeah. the window, I said, I need to bang on that thing yeah. to make sure yeah. that, that, that I couldn't break it yeah. and just crawl out. Yeah. And he said, and you made it. So you, he, he put a glass that was absolutely impossible to break. And he goes, go ahead. It was great. It was it. great. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up so that we could actually get that, that physicality in there. Because, um, you know, it, it is an environment which doesn't really lend itself to you being able to physically do do much and and obviously film being a, a visual medium we we want to see you doing as opposed to talking and and i think it was great that having you trying to break the glass it really adds a little bit of of a of adrenaline to it to the whole scene and you said yeah go ahead try and pull on the emergency exit see how that works <laughs> and anytime i bring up a question about it, I'd be like, well why couldn't i climb through this go ahead try it i come back after lunch and you'd be with, like go with, ahead, you, with your it. bacon hands <laughs> <laughs> like why is there vaseline all over my hands you're like <laughs> yeah that that was that was that was really fun because i felt really open with you you allowed me to ask the questions without any frustration and then you would you would then end up tricking me and I'm gonna jump in here and say this is an interesting moment because this wasn't so much in the script but this is, again was where I was getting a little bit interpretive 
um, the idea, uh, I hope you like it, Ben, that that from Rutledge and Goodwin's side, they can't actually see uh, Coulter at all. And, and, and we kind of have a payoff moment in the film where he's just, where we discover that Goodwin has just been looking at text the whole time. Um, and, and I don't know how you, how you originally envisioned it when you were writing it. Uh, well, that's exactly right. I, I actually hadn't fully thought through how they were perceiving Coulter, uh, in part because the early drafts of the script, it was strictly from the point of view of Coulter looking out at that image on the screen. There were no scenes in the lab, and uh, so I didn't really have to worry about that. But ah, I, 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 see, love yeah. the, I love the solution you came up with. It, it perfectly makes sense. And I, I'm actually glad that we added some, some scenes where we move around the lab a little bit. It makes it a little bit less uh, claustrophobic. Yeah, it just opens it up a little bit. You can see, too, the actors looking. You can see Vera looking down yeah. when you don't cut away from her. She looks down to see that, you know, what I'm saying. That was always a, a tricky one for, for, I know, for Jeffrey Wright and for, for Vera was to constantly, <laughs> I, had to, I, had to, I was always trying to, to reinforce and remind them that although they're looking at a camera in order for Coulter to see them, whenever they want to see what he's communicating, they had to look down at this screen. So sometimes you'll see um, uh, Vera in the middle of a conversation, she'll just keep glancing down. It's like she's looking at her crib sheet or something. It's not. It's because she's actually reading the text. That, that's, uh, that will pay off later in the film. Uh, Duncan, I had a question. Um, I wasn't uh, on set when you were working with uh, Jeffrey Wright. Uh, what was some of that process in terms of discussing how he was going to approach uh, Rutledge, the, the author of Source Code? I think the, the thing that we, that we both agreed on up front is that, is that as, as as unusual as a, as a character as Rutledge might be, from his perspective, he really has to believe that he's doing the right thing. Um, and I think whether it's, you know, whether it's making the source code a successful uh, piece of technology for the Defense Department or whoever's paying for this and using it to save, real, to save people's lives, you know, to, to, do this, to do this thing, which is a, which is a positive thing, um, everything else that, that, that may come out of his performance has to be grounded in that in that perspective for him. I pulled her off the train. Give me her name. You know, uh, it should be said that when, you know, I never saw Veer's image on there. It was, it's just, it was a green screen most yeah, of the true. time. that's true. And it's amazing watching it now because even I don't remember that I was looking at green. Um, and there was this weird feeling of isolation in there because we were shooting in... That strange wasn't even a sound stage. It was like a big somebody's old, garage. Somebody's <laughs> yeah, like, like feral cats running around and like dust and stuff. Yeah. So like, it, you know, the only person I really had conne a connection with was was you, Duncan, and I would hear your voice through the outside of the the outside of the pod, and then I would hear your voice through the speakers that we had. Uh, saying the lines to me but then it was you and it was basically our cam our camera department and that was it like well it was crazy these the pod was like it was basically three different 360 degree sculptures and we'd, we'd we'd pull out a puzzle piece and stick you in it and then the camera would pretty much fill up the gap of where the of, of where of, of how you got in there so you were pretty much surrounded whenever you went in there the the environment was was pretty uh, all-inclusive all around you 
Do you know what I say too? I I I mean I I keep talking about the acting thing, but I just realized that I never knew when Duncan didn't like a take, which I think is an incredible skill as a director. In that, I felt like no matter what choices I was making, you were into. You were just checking off somewhere behind the scenes the things you actually liked. But the whole time I felt encouraged, which as an actor and director relationship, yeah. it's very rare where you feel like every one of your choices is is a good choice. Well, I think I think my my job as as a director is to create a safety net. It's sort of I know I have a film that I know will work, and then I try and create environments for all departments, really. Um, especially the actors, where they can be improvisational and they can push boundaries and try things out. Because I think trying trying things is where you get the the, the really uh, the creative moments and the things that people um, get excited about when they're watching a movie. Um, and then if I know that I've covered my bases on the safety net, then anything else is a bonus to me. And and when it comes to the edit and working with a guy like Paul Hirsch, we can we can just pull bits out and say, this is going to be great, and we can use this, and we always know we've got this sort of baseline that, that everything is covered. This, these shots, the doors, as much as people feel like this is a big-budget movie, and it is in comparison to a lot of small films, you know... <laughs> <laughs> there were things in it that were just totally, literally, totally mechanical. We had three people pulling at the doors, and me there simulating. Was, there me was touching a little bit them. of a door crack just there, actually, <laughs> yeah. that I just saw a little, little gap in the door. We had like yeah. people manually pulling the doors to make it look like they were actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I would press it and wait for two takes, and I'd be like, "Cut, cut, cut, cut." I don't know if this train would be track legal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like, don't touch any of the handlebars because they literally might just break off, even though Barry Trusset is an amazing Absolutely. production designer. Absolutely. Um, there are those moments where you can you could feel the budget, <laughs> but it does not look that way, which <laughs> is really a real doesn't. testament to everybody. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And I could not get that door handle open. Do you remember that? Yeah. I think that was yet another opportunity for you to cut your hands. <laughs> no, they, apparently, there were some doors that didn't open and then literally some doors that, like, couldn't open. Like, that yeah. was a... And that lock is a teeny lock. Don't know why I knock it with the. <laughs> that was one. That my one hesitation is, I put a lot of effort into knocking off a plastic lock from. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't it, mean. It to... had to be. You know, you had to do something in order to get access to this gun, and it had to be something that was. Uh, you know, that you created enough of a ruckus. That, that people were going to come running. Insert, I remember that insert. Yeah. They were like, don't hit it so hard. You're actually opening it the first time. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I lightly tapped the lock. I like how all the action uh, kind of gives way to this very intimate moment between the two of them. Hmm. Uh, where, he, I mean, he's just, he's not going to go anywhere for the rest of the source code. So all they have uh, is each other. I thought that was very nice. There was dra a one draft which you wrote, Ben. I think where they 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 actually kiss in this moment, and I think there was a and then then it, then it went away, yeah. and and I don't even know if it was there if it wasn't, but I think I don't know if we did it or we didn't do it, but I think it worked so well that you've already seen them kiss actually. Mm -hmm. and yeah, we, they kiss once. They he uses kiss as a manipulative tool. Yes, at, at the start of the film to get her off the train. And then the only other time they kiss is when it when he means it at, at the, the end of the end. film, which I think is probably the right way to go. That was you, wasn't that just you? I don't know. That, that really? I think that does ID that was you. Okay. Yeah. We had different crew members <laughs> on the IDs. That's yeah. everybody. 
I feel like we should say a little bit about the job that Vera Farmiga is doing here. You know, she, yeah. I heard her talk not not too long ago about the, her experience in, in the role, and uh, it never really occurred to me just how difficult it is to sit at a desk and have your face, and that's about it, to act with. And uh, day after day, uh, wearing the polyester uniform, as she said, uh, uh, yeah, with very, the camera pointed right at her face as well. I mean, the the one that 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 Colt is seeing her on. Why not? Yeah, she. I, re I remember her talking about the fact that she, you know, found that so uncomfortable to be have to to be staring down the barrel of a camera to perform. Normally, sort of, she's trained to ignore the ignore the camera. I felt so excited that Vera Farmiga was going to be playing this role, and then I realized that we weren't really going to be working together. <laughs> but it is such a blessing that she's the one playing this character because she just adds, it's like, it's a whole other movie without her, you know? Yeah. No, she, she's an incredibly nuanced um, in, in, uh, and talented performer. Knows exactly, you know, obviously we were sort of very, very closely um, working out what the framing was going to be so she understood how much literally space that she had to work in. Very good advice. I'm a really good artist. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably worth pointing out at this at this stage that um, none of this is shot on a real train, obviously. Um, so outside of those windows um, was was green screen, and um, all the footage that you see floating past the windows is is actually uh, was a separate shoot done later on as part of the post production. Um, creation of assets um, down in Chicago where we took a train that was loaded up with cameras and we, we shot a whole series of, of, um, of, of, uh, of landscapes to be able to stick in those windows. There was an awful lot of work and that, that went into that to work out the timings to make sure that the, uh, the imagery that you see outside those windows was always right for what was going on at that moment in, this, in the eight minutes of, of the source code. I also I'm, like how you set this conversation in a physically different part of the train. It just, it, it's a new place to look at, relieves some of the repetition. I also just wanted to note, even just in terms of the props in this movie, what, what I noticed about every department in working in Montreal was that it felt like every department uh, really believed in the artistry of what they did. You know, it wasn't just a sort of day-to-day -day job that they came in. It was real art, and they really, we all respected each other as artists, which uh, I think stems from the top down in terms of Duncan and who he hired and why. And then also I think just the spirit of um, the Canadian crew that we worked with. I mean, they I've just felt always like the nature of this movie was in service of um, a great story and, and the art of it as opposed to, oh, we're just going to make a... I love this moment. I love what you did here, the little improv with the, with the pen. Oh, yeah. This is, this is really fun. For what? Uh, psych. I got a big test this morning, so I should get back to it. Can I uh, borrow a pen? We really did well. We really had a very good fortune as far as the casting of all of our of all of our other characters on the train. There's they're they're a good, uh, fun, um, interesting lot, I think. And again, it does kind of fit into that whole sort of Hitchcock vibe we were going going for. How much of the crew was Montreal based, and how much did you uh, 
bring from elsewhere, Duncan? Uh, you know, 99%. It was uh, it was very much a local crew. In fact, some some of the people I'd worked with about you know, uh, 12, 15 years earlier, back when I did my first professional job in Montreal. Um, the Don Burgess obviously was uh, came up from the United States, but he was um, you know because of the the speed and the the budget of the film, he came up on his own. Normally, you know, I think he likes to move with his with a team of people, and and uh, he he agreed that on this project he would he would work with with a with a whole new crew f from Montreal. Fortunately, it worked out. Um, but uh, no, it was it was pretty much Canadians up there that we were working with. Wonderful, wonderful crew, in particular as again I say as an actor. And your camera crew is such an important part because they're with Hugely. you every single camera moment. operator Francois on Francois. it was he's amazing, really amazing. Just I, I think he's he's technically incredibly proficient, but I think for actors as well, he's just he really makes things comfortable. Very rarely do you have somebody who is encouraging and feels like an audience watching a, a stage play in every take, you know, and he encourages you and feels like you know, there's nothing better than, as an actor than to feel like you're supported and you know even if you're doing a bad job, he, he gives you support. So. Really great guy. So we're getting close to a pretty central reveal in the story here. There was one moment here that I love that you you, I, I re asked if I could pay for the phone. Yeah. Because <laughs> I realized the prop department had given me a wallet with real money in it and the yeah. whole thing, and so I thought, well, why would he just ask? Why not? Why wouldn't he just? Say he has money. Well, I loved it because it kind of, yet again, it kind of sets up something that happens later on when he talks to to Russell Peters' character, the Max Denoff, um, and and knows how much money he can give him. Ben, this was uh, in the script. This was such an incredible moment when you got to this part. You know, you just went, I think I know where I'm going, as an audience member, but I have clearly have no idea. And even if as, as the audience you think you know that he might be dead. You know, there's something about this moment that is so brilliant. I mean, there's, there's, there's something unique about this one as well, Ben. And th tell me if I'm wrong, but this is the only time where he gets sucked back into the pod not having been killed. Uh, that's correct. And what I was kind of intending is this is a sort of coming apart for him. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Everything kind of pixelates. And, and I think you... You, you, you demonstrate that really well when you start seeing some effects work on, on her image. And this is the first time you, you start to think, well, is, is this an artifice? Is source code just a construction? Because she seems to start flickering out. And, you know, then we go from this to a recovered memory of his last moments um, in combat. It's a, tr it's a tricky one for me, and I kind of felt like I, I wanted to find a way to make it feel justifiable that if we have parallel realities, which is what we're setting up here, there is still some thread which is connecting him to the original reality. So that so that the, the source code, the, the technology which is being used would still possibly have some visual effect on what he's in seeing in, in this parallel reality. The idea being that after the eight minutes, when he's still in that parallelity, parallel reality, that thread will finally be cut, and and that will be a, a that will be a complete reality where he has no connection to the to the other one, and that was that was always sort of a a tricky you know mind game I was trying to sort of sort out in my own head. You always had to slow me down too because I I always wanted it to go faster and faster and faster. Yeah. And I think that was the the feeling of being inside of the character, 
And I remember in this scene, you know, I think his first intention was to get up and say, am I dead? Am I dead? And, you know, we really spent time in this moment saying he must have had some idea of something. And when he discovers it, it's just so shocking that it would be still, you know. Yeah. Yeah. How How can that possibly be? And, you know, it's still just trying to put the logic of it together, even though he now has all of the he has all the clues and he knows what the implications are. He still has to really sort of come to terms with it. I think for me, this was what the first half of the story is really working towards. And as I struggled with, you know, how much action, how much thriller to put in there, how much time travel mechanics, as I was struggling to write the scripts, uh, Jordan Wynn, one of the producers on the movie, said, you know what, this is a character mystery. And, And just thinking about it as a character mystery made it much more intimate and, and easier for me to handle and it really put me in his experience. And and by the way, when I saw this scene in Rough Cut for the first time, it terrified me. And, I, you know, I sort of knew what was coming. I had no idea what Duncan was doing here. And so he just had, he said, please just look around, you know. And so I looked around and I, look, I looked over my side and that, that and I... Uh, th- that I guess again, you know, I was sort of perfectly manipulated, in not knowing what um, what was happening actually Is, as an actor. We're we're about to come up to a very important moment in the rating of this film as to where where one might place a swear Fuck word. You. <laughs> right you only there. get one. <laughs> we did a couple takes without that too. We that did, and, and I'm just wondering if we ever if we ever did any takes anywhere else in the film where you used the expletive. Yes. Because I think it was, it's the right moment. I think there is the, is, the is the right moment. And it was written in capital letters yeah. with a couple exclamation points. Yeah, yeah. I think. Well, you know what? I did unsettle it. Did you ever have any conversations, um, Ben, when you were working on the script as to as to what the rating of the film was going to be and, and, and how, if you had to tone anything down in order to to fit that? Uh, no, it, it always felt like, a, you know, a pretty solid PG-13, you know, scary thriller, but, you know, uh, you only get that one use of that profanity. So as a writer, you're really looking for the, the most wonderful moment you can use that one in. Yeah, yeah. It was incredibly satisfying to say, I have to say. Because <laughs> for me, I think the, the, the one of the real moments where I was sort of having the challenge of working out, you know, how to keep within the rating but still do what I needed to do was the, the reveal of your body later oh, on in yeah. the film where you know just how gory could we get and at the same time I needed a certain visual in order for the audience to understand why he was never going to get out of this situation you know that was that was an amazing I mean that, we will get to that yeah. I guess again the screens got bigger and they were all green and so you know <laughs> at a certain point there was even a frustration for me in that I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see these people. You know, as an audience member, you can see them, but as an actor, you can't. And so, you know, it got me more and more upset that as I spent more time in there, I really couldn't see these people. And I didn't really know what they were doing because we shot this part first. Yeah, so yeah. I didn't know what they were going to do. I didn't know what, you know, what they really looked like or what the place looked like. I, 
I had no idea. And so it did nothing but help me because it got me more and more upset. <laughs> <laughs> Kept you lost. Yeah. yeah. I'd like you to remember that it's not only about you, but it's also about two million real-world Americans. Now, you may not value your own life. I do, however, ask that you value theirs. This is the first moment to where Coulter realizes he's dealing with, you know, something even more dangerous in that he's he could potentially be powerless. You know, he could potentially just be, you know, somebody's puppet. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's a really... He realizes he's, he's the forces here are much more powerful, powerful than him, you know, you know, be careful what you say, be careful what you tell them. Um, and a, a sense of sort of paranoia kind of creeps in and it defines why he eventually, particularly the sort of torture sequence, why he eventually goes. It, to me, I decided, well, if they're going to play that way, well, then I'm going to play this way. Yeah. And um, so that's a huge turning point was for me in the script. You know, it was like sort of the beginning of the third phase of Coulter's. This this is also a really important part for for Vera's character, Goodwin, as well, where she's really sort of try, starting to sense that what's going on is beyond what is acceptable for, for, for what is, you know, for, 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 a, for a man in the military or anyone. And, and conversely, this is where you start to see Rutledge's true colors and where his, his own loyalty lies, which is more towards advancing his project. Uh, he doesn't really care about Coulter. Coulter's a, a puppet, as you said, Jake, an insect on a pin. Hmm. I mean, this pod was huge. It was huge. How tall was it? It was like... Oh, yeah, it was about 18 feet or yeah, something. I mean, it was... More than that, it must have been, isn't yeah, it? I mean, it was, it was a strange shape, too. It was kind of uh, sort of kidney bean shaped, sort of went up and then it kind of went off to the side to where the window was. I just want to say that this is, uh, you know, I can, you can probably all tell now, this is Scott Bakula's voice. Um, I think what I really enjoyed, being a science fiction fan myself when I was reading um, the source code script, um, I got very excited about recognizing ideas and, and seeing how Ben had been man managed to sort of take all of these various uh, conceits and ideas from science fiction and weave them into something uh, new and fast-paced and exciting. Um, and there was that particular moment from early on in the film where, um, you know, where, where Coulter sees himself in the mirror and there's another face there. And it made immediately made me think of the old TV show Quantum Leap. So when we were casting a voice for, for Coulter's father, it just seemed like, you know, it would be fun to actually be able to have a little tip of the hat there to, uh, to, uh, to, to that TV show and Scott Bakula. And, and he was the one who came in and did the voice of Coulter's dad. And I think he did a, an amazing job. What I like here is that you can see that he's gotten quite good at certain aspects of this train, even though it's only been eight minutes. He's relived it, you know, maybe 10, 15 times by now. You don't see every source code trip back, but uh, he knows what he's doing, or at least he thinks he does. We had a couple takes in there that, that Duncan suggested that I, I say to the actor, Kaz, who... who who plays the guy who we got in the fight earlier on that I sort of apologized to him. There was one take where I passed him and went, hey, hey sorry, I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> as a... It was, it was fun. I mean, it, yeah. I, I think, you know, more time we could have probably played with it a bit more and maybe yeah. make it work. But I think I think we got the... At least there's a little nod of acknowledgement there between the two, you know, yeah. which I think works. I hand me your phone. You're done. 
I love this. This is the quintessential scene where, you know, Duncan Jones' intensity and, 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 and uh, terror and, at the same time, humor comes into play. I was talking to my wife. Try it again. Your call. Dial it again. Okay. I'm going to press redial. Your phone is going to ring. I don't think we realize how much I had to handle different objects in so many scenes. <laughs> there was one point where I had four objects that Ben, I don't know if you realized you had written that I had to have handcuffs, two phones, and a gun. <laughs> and I had to be able to handcuff him, point the gun at him, and right. call on the phone at the same time. Right. To which uh, there was like this moment where the entire movie like hinged on how we could make that work. I remember you becoming a little bit frustrated. <laughs> I also wasn't eating food because I was trying to yeah. like lose weight for the pod, for the pod stuff that was coming yeah. up. And you turned to me and said, Jake, eat some food. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> now this whole reveal of the bomber was, uh, and in one hand it's a very simple, it's a very simple thing, throwing the wallet back on the train. Uh, Again, in writing the script, you know, there was a million different ways he could have caught the guy. Uh, ultimately, I realized that it needed to be a simple, a simple thing. Hand cut right there. Hand cut, FYI. Sorry. <laughs> Keep going, Ben. Uh, I want to just enjoy this shot coming up oh. here. Yeah. yeah, this is where I kind of had some fun. It's <laughs> something I always wanted to do. And... Uh... It's a, a little bit of a crazy stunt that, that I think is very effective mm -hmm. in, in giving you kind of a visceral reaction as an audience and you actually feel mm -hmm. it, which, I, which I, I, you know, I always, when you watch stunts and you sort of, you, if you see people cutting around the stunt, it, you know, it can be very effective. But I had never seen a stunt done like this where the camera literally stays right with the character, with, mm -hmm. with, the, with, the, with the, the, the stuntee all the way through. And um, that's be the whole way, Duncan. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, of course. That was ingenious. Just push him off. Well, I can say no stuntmen off. were used in this shot. No living stuntmen were used. No living stuntmen were used in the shot. <laughs> FYI. So I kind of consider that license plate really good luck because it's GY in the yeah. middle of it, which is the first two letters of my last name. I don't know why I, I always. That's important. The I'll remember that. When always. we work again, I'll make sure all the cars <laughs> have GY license plates. <laughs> Four, five, six, GY. This was an all. This was an odd scene oh, to shoot. So hard to shoot. Left it on the train deliberately. It was. Um, I don't know what happened these these two days. That was. It was so strange. Well, we shoot. had we had some crazy conditions with the weather that were really driving me nuts. I remember that. Me and Don were freaking out about the weather because it was cloudy, it was sunny, it was raining, it was sunny. It was just like all over the place. For me as an actor, you get to this point and. You expect so much, you know, you expect there to be this, and there's a lot here, but a lot of it is very subtle work, and it's not like, it's very surprising who I find to be the bomber, and I think I was dealing with, on this day, how we race and we race and we race to this moment, yeah. and, and we get to this moment, and then there's a guy in like a fleece coat, like, with a like a box it's it's just yeah. there's there's no yeah do you know i mean it, it was a very it was hard for me to kind of wrestle with psychologically because we were stopped for the almost for the first time in the movie yeah i was stopped as an as a character couldn't yeah. move anywhere really and that produced some sort of challenge some sort of weird psychological thing for me yeah 
Um, this is also an opportunity to. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. Like, you basically just sucked that day. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> it wasn't that. We just, we, 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 it was an awkward situation. I remember that I wanted to get this thing of, of, of him shooting through the van um, and, and killing Christina that way, as opposed to having a big cat and mouse all, all over the train station or, or, you know, getting at her another way. Um, and then I love the fact that, you know, we were able to do this shot afterwards where the van pulls the way and you two are, are left face to face, which I thought. It was was the was the right way to to end this in the scene. There's a certain banality to this bad guy that I found very compelling. You know, he's not the uber evil dude. He's he's as you said, a, a guy in a fleece jacket. Yeah. I don't know you. I think I killed your girlfriend. Why? Messed up my timing. Why? Oh. You mean, you mean why this? Because the world. And we all start building hell. up in our mind and our imagination as audience members. Oh, this guy's got to be this, and that's how I picture a bad guy. And then yeah. all of a sudden, again, yeah, it's just. It's just a self wearing. Yeah. Self centered. One of my favorite villains was was um, was in Silence of the Lambs, was Buffalo Bill. Uh, when yeah. he answers the door for the first time and, and, and he's being quizzed about, you know, if he knows anything about what's going on and he says, oh, is she a fat lady? And I just thought, that, you know, that, that sense, again, that sense of humor and, 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 and scariness at the same time was, uh, you know, I just, I've, I've, always, I've always loved that as a villain. I love this shot. Such a cool shot. Yeah. Christina. Stay with me. Stay with me. Yeah, these are very static setups compared to all the speed uh, on the train, which is nice, nice juxtaposition. This is a this is a moment too that I really moves me. Just you know that you really start to see that these two people, this isn't the end. that he in particular cares about her. Yeah. This is my little my little Fincher moment <laughs> going up through the. Uh... So Up cool. through the grate backwards, little panic room. So cool. Reference. How did you fit the camera through those <laughs> vents? Is what I want. <laughs> tiny hands. Again. I found an operator with tiny hands. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. And if it went through the vents, why couldn't it go through that little mesh into the phone? That's what I wanted. <laughs> right. If he, his hands just weren't tiny. Always want time. more. You always want more, Jake. <laughs> I give and I give. <laughs> One of the benefits of going to Chicago was obviously the, the Anish Kapoor um, cloud gate sculpture, the bean that we sort of end at. Um, I, I mean, I know when we had to move the film from, from New York to and find another city, the, the fact that that existed in Chicago got me very excited because I, I just felt the whole idea of distorted reflections was, was going to be very useful as a, as a joining tool for, for those scenes. I know that Ben had a, had a, an old, a sort of something there that was original, um, a, a, a different option. Um, and because of the Chicago location, it kind of opened up an opportunity for me. I think what's also been interesting is that he sees this every time he goes in between the two worlds. He sees that sculpture, and it it doesn't really pay off until the end when he's standing in front of it, but it does imply that, you know, he's been on the wrong side of fate so many times, but maybe there is this uber destiny that he was always going to end up there in the end. 
And Goodwin, and Goodwin, there is a radioactive device in the van, some kind of bomb. Thank you, Captain. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Captain. You are now off the clock. About our deal? I had hoped... I used to call Christina ma'am. At the very, very I beginning... I remember when we talked about that, about how you really wanted to call a ma'am at the start. And Thank I, you, I was kind of awkward and polite. Yeah, and it's and not in there anymore. That's great. That's, yeah. I, it's... Yeah. So interesting. I thought first and foremost, Calder Stevens was a gentleman, which Sean Fentress was not. You do call her ma'am once in this. Oh, yeah. It's, it's you, when you... Yeah, thank you, ma'am. And you go off and yeah, you ignore her terrible I think she's help. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the guy who came in third in America's yeah, Got Out. <laughs> like, okay, thank you, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> is this a query of some kind or a dam? It is. It okay. is an amazing quarry, and uh, this was, you know, what I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna accept a mea culpa on this moment. The Chicago skyline in that shot was supposed to be um, much closer and bigger than it is in in that previous shot, but we, we, uh, you know, time got away, time and money got away from us, so we weren't able to do that. But it is actually outside of Chicago, but as far away as it looks. Little known fact, Vera Farmiga always wears that little microphone on her ear in any movie. <laughs> it's something that she always has with her. Congratulations. Well done. And I believe she's always listening to Howard Stern with her earpiece as well, which is kind of weird. As, as any good captain would. Yeah. Are you married, Captain? Um, this was a big scene between the two of us in terms of it was because I mean, really, this was this was a building relationship and something where she was slowly starting to accept that this piece of machinery, as far as she was originally seeing it, was more than that. That there really was a person at stake here. It, Are you married? The sort of philosophical question of belief, you know, believing someone, having faith in someone, as opposed to again, this is the first time that Coulter is not is trusting his instincts and not the instruments anymore. And she's a very, you know, following the instruments. And he's saying, trust me somewhere, even though you can only read what I'm saying on a computer. Yeah, well, yeah we're coming up to that reveal now, actually, and mm -hmm. the fact that it's, that it's text. And, and to me, that, you know, I think, I think we, our generation is probably the first generation who would believe that you could have a relationship like this purely based on, on text. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a new aspect of our lives that you might have a conversation this way. It's also interesting that he asked if there is an alternate version of Goodwin because uh, I think that sets up what, what's going to happen in the, in the end of the movie, yeah. at least one interpretation of the end. We should discuss that, Ben, because the, the, the idea that there are multiple interpretations of the ending is <laughs> something I've been asked about a lot. And, and obviously, as a director, I have to believe that there is one because I have to know what that is and, and approach it in that way. But I'm not sure if your intention was, was that there is more than one or... Well, I think uh, I, I certainly have an opinion about the end, which maybe we can talk about when we, when we see the end. Sure. Uh, I think that because we all sort of have been living with the rules of this, we, we kind of get it. Uh, if you see it just once, you know, maybe you don't always get it, but... Uh, you know, everyone's just going to have to see this multiple times. 
if if you guys are comfortable with it, maybe when we're on the uh, on the end credits, I might give a little spiel on what I believe that that ending is, just because I think you know there I do get asked about it a lot. I want to hear about it. <laughs> okay. Because it makes complete sense to me. Yeah, that's it's yeah. it makes complete sense. You know, this shot was really cool because, or oh, the shot of me, did we pass it already? The shot of, uh, the backwards shot where I had to learn. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to learn the line backwards. That's learn right. Learn the line backwards. I think we're coming up to it. So I say this line backwards because actually the shot, though, it moves towards me. It starts off close up on your eyes and then the camera had to pull away. This is pushing That's towards this me. shot right now. Captain, it's your choice. I say it's your choice, but I said it learned it backwards. And then we then we had another shot, which also started on your eyes, morphed the two together, and then the camera pulls back the other way so that it feels like the camera is moving in on your eyes and then away from your eyes. Now coming back. I'm going to save her, Goodwin. It was an honor, Captain. This is really a movie about a guy, a soldier not becoming a soldier. Good luck. You know, and look at the broad stroke of that character. He actually is that goose flying <laughs> That's right. in the air at the end. <laughs> I took your advice. You're going to move to India and become a guru. So he's fully in control of this world yeah. now. And uh, I love the chemistry between you and Michelle in this in this whole part of the film. It's just, it's lovely. This these moments. This is how Michelle and I get along, really, day to day. She's hard not to fall, <laughs> fall for her Absolutely. on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But this is great. This is just. Let's just keep work. Brian can find someone else to assist him. I like how you hold on this one shot for a long time. That's very nice. Yeah, it's kind of pushing in the whole way as well. You know what? What? I feel really good. Why? Because I've been waiting for weeks for you to ask me for coffee. Jacob? Um, okay. Just give me a couple minutes, okay? And I'll be right back. You gotta go save the world. I knew he was a keeper. That's her life. That's great. <laughs> I love that we were all quiet on that. I know. I think the first time we've been quiet. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get that backup phone. I wish I could take credit for the second phone, but that wasn't my idea. Where did that come from? Was that was that? No, it must have been a, a, a right one of the one of the uh, one of the drafts. Yeah. Good producers. Absolutely. Another nice little nod yeah. from these guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the way, I, I have to just take a moment and say that I have no idea why I pressed the open close button to the the laboratory with two hands, but I always do in every shot. And it must I, I literally lean down to the if you if you yeah. go back and look, I lean yeah. down to the button and I press it because I just it's saw Kaz intensity. just basically it's touch a, it. It's an intensity, I think. Really intense with seven fingers. <laughs> 
Uh, do we want to explain why Rutledge has a crutch, or do we want to leave that to conspiracy theorists? <laughs> I feel like we should keep that a mystery, don't you? Okay. Some, okay. some parts should always be a mystery. Okay. <laughs> so this is uh, Goodwin being forced to uh, realize that Rutledge does not have Coulter Stevens' best interests at heart. Sir, uh, we, we, we told Captain Stevens that we were going to let him die. Let him die? He just saved millions of lives today. How many other disasters might he avert down the line? For all we know... I feel like his argument's actually really compelling. You know, that's what makes it so great, is that it's you think... One. It's true. Millions of people were saved, and, you know... That's sort of a very important thing. I wouldn't say sort of. This also kind of convinces her character to take the action she's going to take right after this. It it, it does, but the implications of, of Rutledge wanting to use the source code the way he, he does, um, as, as Coulter has experienced it, if the parallel realities are permanent and they're not just eight minutes long, if they actually exist... Um, this in is perpetuity. That, this is that moment, by the way, the handcuff yeah. with a gun and two phones moment. That we yes. <laughs> there was a lot of stuff we <laughs> had to juggle. <laughs> and oh, then finally he said, don't worry, I'll just get an insert of you putting the handcuffs on him. It's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. No, 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 it's okay. This, there's a great moment, actually, a lovely little moment from Joe, the uh, Joe the technician, as we call him. This is a... Uh, that, is, that just makes me laugh every time he does it. Just going to celebrate... <laughs> oh, it's a little bit later. It's over. You understand? Hey, my name is Derek Frost. I planted a nuclear device in a white. I think this is a nice moment from from uh, Derek. Uh, I think he, to me, seems just like a you know, spoiled child whose candy's been taken away. I think that's the exact right way to go for this guy. I think he's also utterly befuddled as to as to how everything could be going so terribly wrong with this this wacko on a train who seems to know everything about him before you know, I, I love I love that bewilderment. You mind if I borrow this? Kick the phones. Yeah, that was actually a setup for something that we were thinking about filming that we ended up not going with. Where, where uh, Derek would be. There's a there's a frozen moment which happens in the in, on the train, and um, there was going to be a second frozen moment where you actually got to see, you know, Derek trying to struggle to get the phones, and we'd be sort of frozen watching him doing that. And uh, I think you know it was the, it was the right choice not to use it because I think that that. That magical moment of the passengers and and Coulter and Christina and and uh, I think that's really got to be the focus and to to go back and forth is to kind of lose something. Hello, Captain. There's that window you're talking about, the shapes the, of the windows. Yeah, the one on the top in particular is the one that I would imagine that that this this Coulter body may at some point have had some sense of or even just felt the light of it, the shape of it, or, or maybe he opened his eyelids at some point and saw it. And that's what he's been incorporating into his, into his, um, into his ma manifestation of the pod. Now, you may not believe this, but that body 
in the uh, in the incubator is not Jake. <laughs> and it's not me. It is an incredible, incredible piece of um, of, of 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 prop work, of of animatronic puppeteered prop work, and it's it's. I have to admit, I mean, I don't know what you feel, Jake, because you came and saw it in person, mm. and Vera was was seeing it in person. It was the most believable um, prosthetic I've ever seen. I, I was a doctor at the premiere the other night who, you know, deals in emergency rooms all the time. It was a friend of mine who came up to me and said it was – he said, I see things like this all the time, and it was incredibly disturbing to see that. It just looked so real. Yeah. So it's a real testament to he, the, uh, the guy who did the work on it. It was it was incredible. He had he had lungs that would breathe. He had – you know, mm. the eyeballs would roll under the eyelids. The jaw would move. Um, even the brain would swell. I mean, it was uh, it was an incredible piece of work. I'd say too this scene. Yeah. I, this scene, Duncan and I, and the, again is a testament to you as a director and how you work with actors. We we spend about two hours at the beginning of the day not shooting a thing. Yeah. Figuring out the scene and what the essence of the scene was, and um, knowing that it was an incredibly important moment in the yeah. movie. And that is, you know, when time's ticking by for you, I'm sure, and thinking, oh, am I going to be able to cover this? And you know. It was so relieving to say, you know, we're not going to get out of here till we really get the yeah. scene that we want to get. So important. You can't you can't build up to a moment like that and then rush through, you know, the climax of it. You got to get the climax right. Mm -hmm. If you're going to rush through anything, rush through something else. You know, not but not not moments like that. You know, to me, this call is one of the most moving parts of the film. Uh, again, it's about a soldier not being a soldier anymore, and part of that is. Uh, coming to some kind of closure with his own father. Take care, Mr. Stevens. And the fact that he has to impersonate a friend uh, just somehow made it, gave it the right distance to make it so poignant. I also thought it was really a really cool move, and it was budgetary constraints too, but that first there was a section, Ben, that, that you had written that couldn't be shot because we didn't have enough money to shoot it, where you met the father and you saw what he was going through, and yeah. Duncan decided, you know, we what if we just had him as a voice? What if he was just mm -hmm. in the background? And that made so much, it makes a scene so moving in a way that yeah. you picture him however you want to picture him. Yeah, yeah. Sort of. So. Too bad Michelle Monaghan's not pretty. Dr. <laughs> Rutledge. This environment was actually pretty difficult to shoot in. We were in, we were. It was not a studio space. Um, the ceiling that you see in here is the actual ceiling of the of the of the building we were in. So very low, you know, low for lighting lighting purposes. I think Don Burgess did an amazing job of of doing what I what I was hoping for, which is creating these sort of pools of light and keeping it quite moody in there, but still giving the whole shots depth that you could actually see the busyness of this facility and everything that was going on. Um, you know, it's it's. It's interesting because you're intercutting between, you know, two very different experiences, but somehow you, you don't get confused. You're sort of able to track both both things. It doesn't have to be. I will bet you $100 you can't make all these people on this train laugh. Well, you do have these kind of two ticking clocks going on right now. You have the one for, for in this world um, where Rutledge and Goodwin is, where... You know, Goodwin's going to shut down source code basically, and and Rutledge is going to be out of a job. 
Um, and then in this world, you have the the eight minutes that Coulter Stevens is expecting is going to end his end, end his existence at its end when when it when it runs out. I like to think too that you know. There's some sort of psychological aspect to this for, for Coulter in that she says to him over and over again, right before the train explodes, everything's going to be okay. And until he believes it himself, and he says it to her because he believes it, until he can do that, you know, the train will keep exploding. And in this case, somewhere too on a psychological level, he believes everything's going to be okay, and so the train doesn't explode. And that's, I don't know, I just thought that was, mm. just in terms of a character's journey, I had to think, where does he get to? Where does he get to? And it's, that he has to believe everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And the only way to do that is to let go of the old him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Let go of that piece of him that is only half alive. Yeah, it's like that thread that we were talking about before, the, the, the one that allows him to sort of be pulled back into the, that old reality earlier on. This, this, this kind of is going to be that, that moment where, it, where he severs himself from that reality. And maybe in definition of what you're going to say about the other, this ending creates a new one. Yeah. Out of the one that exists. Yeah. Well, that's, that's I mean, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute when we, yeah. hit, when we hit credit time, but... There are some there are some moral ambiguities that I'd love to talk to Ben about as far as what the ending of this film means. <laughs> I remember actually at the Q and A we did at South by Southwest, you answered one of them, and uh, about what happened to Sean Fentress. <laughs> well, I, I actually lo I really love this shot here. It, in a way, in and of itself, it is an ending. This this freeze frame here because this is how he is leaving life. Uh, on this note of acceptance and, 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 and happiness. And it seems so perfect that it is this frozen moment because it also suggests the artifice uh, of the source code, too. In the original script I wrote, the MPs had never seen Coulter's body mutilated like that before, and uh, got very upset at what what had been done to another soldier, and that's uh, that hostility kind of turned against Redledge. But I don't I guess you don't really need all that by then. So now, now that he's switched off, that that thread is now cut, and we are now permanently in this in this new parallel reality. And this just was just one of those plot turns that. I could never have planned, but as I was writing it, it just occurred to me, and it it made sense with the world that after the end of those eight minutes, she could kind of lock him into that other world, and you know, <laughs> it just worked, and it was I was so so pleased that it all just came together like that. So this is where all the flashbacks kind of finally pay off. I wanted to give a little hint of it to the audience before Coulter did it this, in this particular respect. Normally, you know, I was trying to have the audience and Coulter discover things at the same time, but just in that shot, I wanted, him, I wanted the audience to be a little bit ahead of him so that they could kind of appreciate his reaction to it. 
Do you believe in fate? Not really. I'm more of a dumb luck kind of gal. Come here. So this is coming up to what you could call ending option one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we did we did kind of do a version of this where we ended here and. Um, I felt that there was a very important loose thread that had been so beautifully set up um, with the with the conceit of the of the the science fiction conceit of the story that I that I really wanted to uh, find a way to at least let the sci-fi geeks out there enjoy the paradox um, that that I th- that I felt was was there in this in this section here. You know, I think all the clues are are set out. Um, to make sense of this, but they, they go by quickly. So earlier on, Calder Stevens, on the train, has sent a text message to Goodwin. Now, obviously, as we've learned earlier with the pizza analogy, um, Goodwin in the original reality is never going to receive that email, which means that we must be in, you know, she's just arrived in the morning. This is the reality where Calder Stevens is on the train. And in that reality, the train has never blown up. So we must have a Colter Stevens at this facility, in this new reality, um, who has never been sent on a source code mission and could find himself trapped there forever. So our Colter now in the body of Sean Fentress is doing his best to try and save this Colter that he is aware exists at this facility, in this reality. Actually, that's, that's exactly my interpretation too. Uh, of this ending, and I think what may throw people is they don't realize that they're looking at, this is the source code world we're seeing right now. These are the alternate copies of all these other people. This is an yeah. alternate good one. Uh, I know for Paul Hirsch and I, that was a real tricky thing, because we were trying to come up with a way without anything too expositional or getting into too much detail, and, and, the, and the morning radio and having Goodwin come in in the morning and put a coat down was about as much as we could afford to do. Um, to set up the idea that you are now in the reality where Coulter exists um, in Sean Fentress's body. on a, you know, Which is why it doesn't work in the order, but I remember when we were on the set, I said, what if two guys came up to yeah. us and... Yeah, and we shot that. That ending shot there is obviously, you know, we can see Coulter Stevens, we can see that he's still alive. And, and again, that's hopefully, like you say, Ben, there, there's another clue there to show you that this is not the reality where he's been shut off and where he's dead. This is that alternate reality. And what's intriguing to me is did that alternate reality exist and they tapped into it? Or did source code somehow generate that reality just by him Absolutely. going back on the train? And that, that even to me is even crazier, which is Well, that's fun. what I was assuming. And that, that's the way I've always played it is that, is that each time the source code is used, Rutledge is actually responsible for a whole new series of deaths because when Coulter is unable to stop the explosion on the train, there are a whole new set of casualties. Yes, but Rutledge deals with all those, all that suffering in the source code world as if it would, you know, they were just uh, computer programs. We don't even care or think about those people. Or, I mean, there's a couple of interpretations. Either Rutledge believes it's a, it's a computer program or he actually does know that he's creating a parallel reality, but that it's only short-lived, that it only lasts for eight minutes. Mm-hmm. Or that it does continue to go on, and he just doesn't care. He only can, can really cares about his reality and the people that he has to deal with, and the people that he's trying to save. Yes, and and maybe maybe uh, Rutledge can't ever know 
beyond that eight-minute boundary if that, that world continues on. No one has seen it. Uh, only at the end of the movie does Coulter realize, wait, it goes on. Does it go on because it just goes on, or does it go on because I was killed in the other reality that locked me into this one? Uh, and and I, I have to set this up for you, Ben, just so that you can give your answer, because it always makes me laugh. But um, as as Coulter Stevens has gone back into the source code and, and stopped the train blowing up, what 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 is what's happened to Sean Fentress? <laughs> Sean is dead. <laughs> Wait, I do. Dead. I would like to say though, it does set up. You know, if the story were to continue, it does set up an amazing fight scene between forty different Sean Fentresses yes. and one Coulter Stevens. Yes, <laughs> one, one Coulter Stevens corpse or, or yes. top top half. Just the top half of Coulter Stevens <laughs> with a lightsaber. Well, I think Coulter Stevens needs to go track down Redledge at Nellis Air Force Base and introduce himself. Heck uh, yeah. Or or at least Goodwin needs to track down. Colter Stevens in the body of Sean Fentress to find out how he knows so much about that's, what's what's going on at the facility. That's why I said I turned to Duncan. Uh, I don't know if if you know this, but I turned to Duncan. We're shooting one day because this is the way Duncan works. You have an idea and he he'll try it out. And I said, well, what if we got two guys in suits to come up to Sean Fentress in that shot and say, uh, Mr. Fentress, will you come with us? And and then walk away from the scene with Michelle at the Bean. And I just thought, you know, yeah. and then you did. You got like yeah. two grips and put them in suits and put sunglasses <laughs> on them. And then we did a take where nice. they came up to me. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's all well and good that they end up at the Bean together. But what is, you know, what's their future together? You know, she has no idea who he really is. Is he ever going to tell her? I think that's very intriguing, too. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. So we've got a number of casualties. We have Sean Fentress dead. We have multiple source code realities, which are now permanent where the train has exploded because the source code has been run. And we have a relationship that's already a mess from the beginning. We have a relationship that's already a mess. (laughs) We have Goodwin, who's confused out of her mind. (laughs) Sounds like reality to me, guys. And it's a happy ending. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And they call this a happy ending. (laughs) Well, I hope you guys all enjoyed that. I certainly uh, enjoyed hanging out with uh, Duncan Jones again and Ben Ripley, uh, two wonderful, talented minds that it was an honor to be working with. God, let's well, leave on let, let's leave on that note. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Ben. I, I really did actually enjoy talking to you about some of this stuff because we didn't really get to when we were making the film. So it's it's nice to finally get a chance to sort of uh, catch up on, on, on each other's interpretations of this stuff. Well, I want to thank you both for, for approaching this with, with so much passion and, and integrity. Uh, you know, and you never know what's going to happen to your script. Uh, all these people have to interpret it. And uh, I, I couldn't have asked for a better outcome. So thank you so much. Thank you, and thank everybody. Thank you to everybody for watching this and listening yeah. to us talk for an hour and a half. Yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs>